All right, welcome back to a bonus episode of the Blasters and Blades podcast. So, hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans, time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies, a place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. So without further ado, let me tell you what we're doing right now. We're getting ready to uh, release some of the archive that we found from when we were the sci-fi shenanigans. Uh, we're going to get those up there for, for the posts that were brought down. We thought you might enjoy them. Um, and so without further ado, let us uh, let us roll that beautiful... Oh, wait, they're going to sue me. Play it. Hey, all you crazy sci-fi fans. Time for your daily dose of insanity. Over here at the Sci-Fi Shenanigans Podcast with your hosts, Jared Handley and me, Chris Winder. Just two nerdy veterans geeking out over a science fiction passion. A place where the sky's the limit, space is the place, and nerds run the world. Without further ado. All right, welcome back to another episode. This time we have returning guest, Paul E. Cooley. Only hey. instead of talking about the Starship <laughs> Troopers novel, which we read or analyzed together, which is, I think, well, the episode will be in the show notes if you're curious. But instead of talking about that today, we're going to talk to him about his own books. Woohoo! So he gets Yay. to be our favorite visiting narcissist. <laughs> hey, wait a minute. Isn't that every author that comes on the show? Pretty much. Yeah, we just don't say it out loud. Well, it's just kind of understood, you know. It's just kind of there. <laughs> so, Paul is an author and podcaster from Houston, Texas. He produces free sci-fi suspense and thriller fiction essays and reviews available from shadowpublications.com and iTunes. In 2010, his short story Canvas and Novella Tattoo were nominated for Parsec Awards. Tattoo became a Parsec Award finalist. He has collaborated with New York Times bestselling author Scott Sigler on the series The Crypt and co-wrote the novel The Writer. In addition to his writing, Paul has contributed his voice talent to a number of patio fiction productions. Um, is that harkening back to the days of the radio dramas? It's harkening back to the days of patiobooks.com when then the... Uh Basically, you could throw a rock and hit a fiction podcast. Yeah. Oh, cool! And we, and we sure. kind of all knew each other. There were there, there were dozens and dozens and dozens of them eight years ago. Interesting. All right. So he's the his best selling novel, The Black, was released in 2014 and won the 2015 Parsec Award for best novel. The next book in the series, The Black Arrival, was released in May 2015 with the final or the third, excuse me, novel in the series, The Black Outbreak, released in May 2016. He's a co-host of the renowned Dead Robot Society writing podcast and enjoys interacting with other authors, except for Chris Winder. Nobody likes interacting with Chris. <laughs> That's true. That's true. So oh, I can see this show is run very much like DRS. I can I can tell that already. <laughs> yes. And then the second part of the introduction that we always do, dear listener, is we tell you how we met them. So I actually found Paul from the Dead Robot Society podcast, where they talk about the craft of writing, as he mentioned. Um, that transitioned me to joining their Facebook group, becoming a Patreon of the podcast, and friends with Paul. He's a friendly, helpful guy. So if you're looking for a supportive writing group, check out the links in the show notes. Seriously. Yep. What about you, Chris? How did you find him? 
Well, back when Paul was a kid, you know, back before gas stations were invented. Oh, uh, he, come on. He used to teach judo at down at the YMCA. Uh, but it was actually, it wasn't called the YMCA because that wasn't invented yet either. Um, but that was only every Tuesday and Thursday. Let's see. Afterwards, oh, he teach some black hat hackers how to do some amazing things on their abacus. Because that was invented. Uh, on Mondays, he taught underwater basket weaving. And every third Friday, oh, every third Friday, he led the worship service for Grog of the Malevolent. And I forgot where I was going with that. Uh, actually, I think I met him on, on his podcast. Yeah, that was probably it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. So, uh, <clears throat> just because I was podcasting before you were born, little hipster there. <laughs> Jeez. Now, you know what made it so hard to be a judo instructor back then? T-Rexes have such short arms. <laughs> yeah, they do. It makes the whole thing very awkward. I can't imagine. Throw a T-Rex and you, you can't grapple. <laughs> I can see that. Swipe the legs. That always works. Now I want to write that story. What, what did you do? I want to write that story. <laughs> well, let's see. Uh, as I move my mouse pointer over to the kick button... It's time to ask the religion question. <laughs> so the religion question, Star Wars, Star Trek, or Firefly? That's a toughie. That's really a toughie. Um, I am oh, not a work. I am not a big fan of Star Wars. Oh. I'm more a fan of TNG than the original. And um, I absolutely love Firefly. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, okay. I won't press a button again to confirm the kick. We're good. <laughs> so when you when you talk, for another thirty seconds, when you talked about the, um, the wrestling with the the T Rex, in my head, I'm going to that Karate Kid, the original. You know, back before okay. they they ruined the the franchise, and he was like, "Sweep the leg, sweep the leg." <laughs> I, I've been thinking about, I've been thinking about Karate Kid because they're doing the YouTube or whatever is doing the um, the new Cobra Kai series. Oh no! I yeah, thought that was just a bad acid dream. They're really doing that. I heard really from people doing that. It. I heard from people that watch it that it's actually good. Mm. So they no have the guy possible. that um, the the blonde guy. I can't remember his name. That was with the Cobra Kai dojo. Like after he lost, it basically his life spirals out of control, and he's still like driving the car he drove in the eighties and nineties, and with the tape deck and all that, and he's drinking, and somehow he decides to start the judo back and or the dojo back, and that's sort of the storyline. Oh God! So he's like in a, he's our age now. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. And so he's, he <laughs> yeah. sounds like more of a sympathetic sympathetic char- character than Danny Russo was. This is true. I've seen Depends. I've seen some explanations of the movie where they actually portray Danny Russo as the bad guy, and it makes complete sense. I can see it. There's actually a yeah. face. There's actually a Facebook group for Cobra Kai dojos where it's like, um, uh, where where basically it takes that sort of angle where it's like Danny Russo was abusive and. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, a support group for people who watch a movie. <laughs> <laughs> there, there needs All to right. be some support group for some people who watch certain TV shows. That's for sure. Yeah. All right. Get back on topic. So, Paul, <laughs> what do you love about science fiction? I guess the same thing I love about um, uh, horror in a lot of ways. We get to dream. Sci-fi has this wonderful penchant for providing opportunities to for, not forecast the future, but imagine a future. 
and imagine what uh, human beings can accomplish. And, you know, apart from all the stories and I write them to where, where, you know, people die out there and all these other things or get eaten alive by monsters or kill each other in, in space combat, whatever. There are so many wonderful things that are possible and so many terrible things that are possible, just like life. But we have a pop, we have a, a potential to imagine things as they are different from what they are now. And I think that's really what's what's so wonderful about science fiction is you look at the the heyday and the golden age, you had so much optimism even wrapped in the uh wrapped in the conflict and everything else that we would escape this rock and uh basically you know, find out more about where it is we actually live. The, u- the universe is much larger than what's outside your front door. And science fiction allows us to play with that in a lot of different ways. Imagine how these technologies are going to be used, misused. Imagine the, how the body politic will change um, as, you know, the closer we get to actually marrying man and machine, which seems to be coming at a very, very, very fast pace. We, we can basically imagine those things and take issue with them and dream about them. And I think that's wonderful because I, I, I think that that's the imagination space that is probably going to lead us off off this rock in the next 50, uh, 100 years. Did you um, see the announcement why Google's um, um, personal assistant AI that's like can call and, and fake humanity like it says the ums and stuff? Yeah. I saw yes. that video. It was a little bit creepy. I think a lot of that stuff is extremely creepy. I will not have an Alexa in my house because I don't trust the damn thing. Now, this wasn't Um, Alexa. This was their new AI. Well, I don't want any of that shit in my house. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I don't want it. I don't trust it. I totally feel you. There's that funny meme that goes around about in the 60s, everyone was worried about the CIA spying on them, and now they're inviting them into the house. I keep thinking there's a thriller involved somewhere where, like, Amazon is just a front company for the cia yes and they're really just spying on people and that's why they invented like the alexa oh that's nothing just wait till your toilet starts talking back to you i mean it's just a matter of time with the way hell that's probably already out there somebody's googling it and sending me the meme right now um (laughs) the uh we we've gotten to this point where we're so gadget happy um which is kind of unfortunate but the you know, the advances are going to keep going and they're going to keep trying to find ways to to make money off of them, of course. And so we're going to see all this wackadoo stuff. You get, uh, you know, you've got your Nest thermostat that's controlling this, that and the other. And there's questionably secure. It could be hacked by somebody else. You've got smart um, appliances like your refrigerator, your stove, your oven, your microwave. Yep. All of these things are massive security holes. And, and of course, with mobile devices, just like the morons did after they created Unix, every other operating system and every other thing that was developed had security as an afterthought. Yep. And some of it never even had it baked in at all. And therefore, we are very, very vulnerable to lots of different mischief. There's a, and unfortunately, we don't seem to be learning that lesson very well. One of the libertarian think tanks, I can't remember which one, produced a video. And if I can find it, I'll link it. If not... Google is your friend, people, but they basically produced a video about what if, and in this future, basically this person gets in trouble for thinking the wrong thoughts and speaking the wrong things in their home. So the um, the computer system shuts them out of everything. So they can't use elevators. They have to take the stairs. They can't use any of their money because it's all digital. They can't even open their uh, digital refrigerator. So they basically can't eat for three days as punishment so they can rethink their, their wow. wrong thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> well, think about it now. If if uh, I if I unplug you from the internet, what can you do? Uh, not a lot. Uh, a lot. Most stuff is like even you. Can, it's even hard to pay bills if you don't want to use online. Exactly. Exactly. So basically, uh, like I have a friend who, you know, is is uh, is a chef. Doesn't get paid shit. Has a kid there, and his two kids don't have access to internet outside of of school. And trying to get anything accomplished is is hellish because everything requires you to send ho- your homework over the internet. Yeah, mm. I don't. But I don't like afford that. the internet. I don't like that with the school system. Like my kid, like he's like, he has to log on to the computer. Like I'm trying to get him away from electronic devices and you're sending me homework. He has to play on a computer game. Like really? Well, it's, it's, it's this double-edged sword at this point. I mean, we've, we've got a, in order for the high, the high tech jobs are going to continue to grow in different ways. And if you want to be able to get into that, then you need to know what it is and how it works. Uh, people of uh, a lot of my, a lot of my, uh, a lot of folks in my generation, if you can call it that, late forties, whatnot, have a grasp of the technology and how to use it. But there's a hard limit for those who are not actually in the technology game. The kids are obviously growing up with it. It'd be like asking my dad to try and play an Atari Twenty Six Hundred back when I got it. He'd have no clue. Yeah, <laughs> Terry Mixon so, actually mentioned that in his Empire of Bones series in one of the later ones where they were going to insert this new tech into a uh, computer game for the kids to try to figure out the potential. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So just, you, you've got there, there. There's like a there's a trade off here. And I don't know. I don't know. I haven't been in, involved in education. I don't have kids. I just saw with my what my wife went through when she was teaching. But it just seems like there's a. There's got to be a spot there where we we can have some kind of compromise on how education is done again because I think we've we've effed it up completely, especially since certain people got into the governorship in Texas and have ruined it for the whole country. But that's a completely different topic. Mm. Uh, the bottom line is that the the we really need to rethink how we are going to use the technology, and if we are going to use the technology, then we need to make sure everybody has access to it so they're not at a disadvantage. So, and if it's that important, then it should be something that we all have access to. Yeah. That's just my thoughts. Okay. You can now hang me from, from my socialist post. <laughs> Sometimes so, technology can be scary, though. I, uh, I think I've talked about this on the podcast before. Sometimes? So, <laughs> one of the uh, anthologies I was going to be in for a um, small press that went belly up, so I didn't finish the story. But, but the theory, the theme was Area 51, so that was the tie-in. So I actually wanted to tell the story set there. So I'm using Google Maps, sitting at the Panera, <laughs> using Google Maps for Area 51, which is actually a, an active Air Force base. And suddenly yep. my computer screen goes completely black. The lady next to me, who was also writing for that anthology, is, com- is doing the same thing. Her screen goes completely black, and we're like, uh, uh, are we going to be seeing any black helicopters, or is it just Panera's Wi-Fi? <laughs> it's Panera's Wi-Fi. It's always Panera's Wi-Fi. <laughs> yeah. But it was. Yeah, I think. If, I think if you're just looking at it online, it's not really a problem. <laughs> well, if you're hacking into their systems, then it's a problem. Well, mm-hmm. the the government has had problems because this was a problem when I was in Iraq, where some of their secure facilities are visible through Google Map. Right. Yes. So I remember yes. at Camp Arif John when I was there, which is in uh, Kuwait City. It's where we picked up all the convoys we escorted. So you could for a while go and you could like zoom all the way into the command center for the base on Google Maps. Wow. 
Oops. <laughs> I don't know if you still yeah. can because I haven't looked in years. I haven't had a reason to, but I just remember I was like, uh, this can't be good. There's there. I, I, I've seen when Google Maps first started doing their deal, I looked up my house and all I saw were trees. That made me happy. Um, but then they did that curbside crap and then you could see my house. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. But try and hide anything from a satellite these days. I mean, you know, it's just a couple of years ago, they accidentally discovered um, these ancient paths in the Amazon that had never been known to exist before. Oh, that's right. That was, uh, and, and it's, I was just saying, you were yeah, saying? they found it through, they changed the way they, they looked at it. Like they were looking for different data. We talked about that in the, yeah. um, uh, MG Heron episode. He, he actually wrote a story inspired by that tech. Yeah. It's, it's really fascinating how much that, uh, you know, is being brought up by, by satellites and, and data that we, um, we had, we just didn't know we had it. And we didn't know what we were looking for. And then suddenly somebody stumbles across it. And it's like, oh, wait a minute. Um, I think there's something here that we missed. And I, I just, I love that about, uh, you know, the progression that's going on right now in science is, is every other day we're learning something that we thought was worked one way when in actuality it's, oh, yeah, it does that. And there's this other thing that we missed. Right. So it's 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 fun to see all that. And I saw something about uh I think it's a Voyager probe, maybe. They're going back over the old data and uh discovered a few things with the number crunching they have now that they didn't realize that they had captured. Interesting. Oh. So we have we have thirty, forty years of data that if if uh NASA or ESA or whomever goes in there and starts run running all these uh algorithms against it with the computing power we have now, there is no telling what we picked up that we didn't know we had. Because wow. now we can look at it using computers to find the patterns rather than having humans, you know, scrolling over billions of binary digits to figure out what the heck is going on. Mm-hmm. So, all right, Paul. So what's your first memory of reading, watching or interacting in the in the sci fi genre? Well, it's got to be the original Star Trek. It's got to be the original Star Trek reruns or maybe Lost in Space reruns. Lost in Space. Wow. Yeah. They had that back then. Huh? Yeah. Uh, shut up. That, that set started in what? 65, I think 65 to 68. I can't remember. Yeah. And it was before that. Yeah. They're still playing in a boomerang. I think I, I played, uh, or I, I made a review of the, the Netflix series for my, for my, uh, for my patrons and, and, uh, I did, had to do some research on it and I can't remember all, I don't have my notes with me, but I just remember seeing the the uh, those old ones, the old black and white before they went color. I think there were two seasons in black and white, one in color, maybe maybe the other way around. But uh, I remember that, and of course, I remember Star Trek big time because I loved the uh, I loved Spock. Yeah. Spock was awesome. Spock was a calming influence when Kirk was having trouble with everything. <laughs> <laughs> but the other show I really really loved was Space Nineteen Ninety Nine. I don't remember that. Oh, God. Hmm. I think it came out in 78, 77. All right, Jared's going to have to add that to the show notes. No, I was in Canada. So it had to be had to be 76, 76, 77, I think. Okay. I was a baby back was, then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. So uh, anyway, that was another, I wasn't another born big one that uh, <laughs> I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. Hey, Jr. You you go sit in the corner. Adults are talking. <laughs> anyway, the uh, I, I think those are the those are the first shows, and I'll I'll, I'll embarrassingly say it, 
uh, Johnny Quest as well. Oh, I love Johnny Quest. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, those were those were like the sci-fi mainstays beside the uh, you know the monster movie marathons where you got to watch the Blob or the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers or Godzilla or whatever. Oh, maybe you know this. Do you remember there was a movie kind of like the Blob, but it was actually reel to reel tape that ate people. That was a short that was on HBO way, way back. I think the first year they started up, and I remember that quite well. Jared, go find that. Guys that, was, film cabinet. that was scary, right? He had to chase it off with a magnet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was like, it was like lost. a five or ten minute film, maybe. Oh, that was so great. It was hilarious. Yeah, it was It was great. It was, it was one of those things that made you shudder and laugh at the same time. Right. <laughs> which is wonderful. So, yeah, I remember that quite well. All right, so, so how'd you go from the love of sci-fi to writing about it? Oh, boy. Um, I always like to, to I, I was kind of, I had a lot, of, eh, this is going to be hard to tell. Yeah, I'm going to stumble over my words for a minute, try and put this right. I think I had a lot of social anxiety back then. I think that I had a lot of problems uh, just basically get along, getting along with other people and, um, it was a little early to be diagnosed with bipolar, but I think that's part of what was going on. But anyway, at any rate, I spent a lot of time just basically lost in my head. I spent a lot of time, uh, you know, writing down things and uh, just kind of, you know, playing, playing in that mind space. And of course, science fiction, fantasy, all those escapist things are to a child who's, you know, having issues with dealing with other children or dealing with adults or whatever else. That's a perfect place for you to basically retreat to mm-hmm. and find ways to make that world that you want to be in or that you want you think would be fun to tell a story in because it doesn't require you to have any other human beings involved. It is something you, it's just like if you were playing with Legos back in the day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Excuse me, I guess. I guess kids still do that. Oh, yeah. You know, your Star Wars figures, your Tinker Toys, your, you know, Erector sets, whatever. Uh, it, it was the same kind of thing. It was it was uh, it wasn't even about building stuff. It was about making um, making stories with the toys. And it was all about having that imagination. It was all about exploring that imagination. And the writing just kind of was the next step from that. Nice. So that's that's part of what drew me to that is basically the the tropes for a young child that is having those kinds of problems. They're just they're a godsend. That's that's why I started writing too, to to process things. There's something therapeutic about it for sure. Oh, definitely. There's there's a uh, right writing. Writing was the probably it still is probably the best therapy I've ever had and will ever have. So. Yeah. And apparently, kid, the kids these days <laughs> they still play with Legos. Mine, mine still love it. And um, Tim Taylor, who was a recent guest, whose um, world I wrote in, his son actually like he wants to be a Lego engineer when he grows up, and he's talked about it. And so he actually built a scale, or not scale, but he built a replica of the um, the Caspers from the Four Horsemen universe. That is because he basically he tries to make Lego versions of the covers from all of his dad's books. So he. So he had a robot, functioning robot Lego thing going on. It's legit. That is cool. That is really cool. I like that a lot. Although I think the Lego company is like German, right? So it would probably have to learn foreign language for that. That's okay. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think that's going to be a problem. Lego is a universal language, man. 
Yeah, some companies you work for, though, if their home base is in another country, you kind of, if you want to get promoted, you have to learn to speak whatever the, the original language is. You do. Yeah, well. To actually get a job yeah, in Germany, you have to learn German. Well, we have the steel plant not too far from where I live, the, the chainsaw manufacturer. And I know if you want to get into management, you got to learn German. Of course, you said still, and I was thinking about booze. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, it took me a minute to put uh, S-T-I-L, throw that away, and put S-T-I-H-L yes, in there. Yeah. <laughs> and no, they're not sponsoring this podcast, nor am I sponsored by them. No. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I, I did a quick Google search. Apparently, Lego is a um, headquarters in Denmark. Oh. So it's Denmark. Ah, so whatever okay. the, the Danes speak, I guess, is what you'd have to learn. Denmarkish, yeah, sure, we'll go with that. <laughs> oh, well, I haven't had enough coffee to parse that statement. I really have. Paul, remember he, was, right. a, he was a marine, so you got to keep it simple for him. Oh, here we go. Here we go. Here we go. All right, Paul. Here's a question you should be able to answer: <laughs> Who has been the largest single influence on your writing? Style, technique, what you strive for, that kind of thing. Besides us, of course. Of course. Oh, yeah. All right. <laughs> um, I, that's kind of a toughie. I think that in my teen years, probably Stephen King, probably. I'm trying to think who else I was really, really in love with back then. Peter Straub, uh, early Kuntz. Hmm. I think those were the guys I mainly were following, main, was mainly following. But there were also, you know, Larry Niven, Jerry Pornell. Um, there, there, there were stories that they wrote together, like Footfall and and uh, Moat in God's Eye, things like that. Those were just seeing how they wrote those stories and the kinds of, of tales they wanted to tell that were kind of, in some ways, sprawling. In other words, not. In other ways, not. That kind of lit the fire for actual storytelling part of things. As far as actual writing goes, I really uh, took a shine to Rick Carver and Flannery O'Connor in, in college from the, uh, from the academic point of view and, and really tried to imbue, imbue my, uh, my own writing style with, with some of their tricks, but also, you know, folks like John Irving, you know, not, they don't write genre fiction. It's, it's just fiction. It's people. Hmm. And uh, I try and maintain that into, you know, the characters I create, whatever plot I try and throw them in. I want the characters to to jump off the page. And hopefully I'm still accomplishing that. But uh, the, th- those were the big influences back then. Of course, you know, you've got to throw in Asimov. You've got to throw in, God, there were so many. I, I just, hmm. I'd have to go back and look at my old bookshelf. <laughs> but but those are the things I really, I really took a shine to in, uh, in my teens. Okay. All right. Well, before we um, get into the next question, because I feel like this one might give him room to um, get a little long-winded, we are going to take a moment. <laughs> hey, there's nothing wrong with that. We, we, we do okay being huh. long-winded. But uh, let's take a moment for a word from our sponsor. When a strange symbol is found at a burned-down historical site, Houston Arson investigator Emmy Aninzo goes to work. As mysterious and inexplicably hot fires break out across the drought-ravaged city, she finds herself digging through the ashes of history. It's a race against time to track down the serial arsonist and explain the seemingly impossible heat of the fires. As strange evidence begins to pile up, Amy wonders if the arsonist is insane, or even worse, 
possessed. Can Emmy and her colleagues find and stop him before the entire city burns? Parsec award-winning author Paul E. Cooley wraps ancient mythology around an eerie contemporary tale that will leave you burning for more. Gare's Inferno, a free podcast novel available from shadowpublications.com and iTunes. Some mysteries shouldn't be solved. All right. Welcome back. Thank you for sticking with us through the commercial. And thank you to our wonderful sponsors for this episode. All right. So, Paul, transitioning from your writing side of the how you write and what inspires you, let's talk about things from the fan angle. Have you gotten any cool fan art or had any fan cosplay from your characters yet? Well, my understanding is that this year at Balticon, there are going to be a couple of people cosplaying the street. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes. Uh, for those who don't know what the street is, it was a parody of Sesame Street where PBS gets canceled and the street basically turns into a combination of uh, New Jack City from the if you've seen that movie, early crack epidemic kind of thing. <laughs> and uh, all hell breaks loose. And, and all the stories are told by Oscar the Grouch as a uh, 50s noir style or 40s noir style mixed with a backdrop of, of uh, drug addiction and everything else is going on. <laughs> Man, a gang war between Snuffleupagus and, and Cookie Monster. <laughs> And all the stories were told by Oscar the Grouch, Private Eye. So um, I had to stop writing that, unfortunately. But uh, it's uh, people people still absolutely love it. And I, I constantly get memes thrown at me, even all these years later. I mean, it's been five or six years now. And uh, the people who and I still get people coming to me going, I've heard about this. Where do I get it? Well, you yeah. can't. <laughs> It's gone. <laughs> it's probably out there on the internet somewhere if you went searching for it, but I take no responsibility for that. <laughs> yeah. um, they're they're going to be cosplaying that is my understanding. And the uh, I actually had somebody who was inspired by uh, my Garaga tales and sent me this uh, this beautiful piece of art that they made. It's huge. Um, that, that basically has his imagining of... of uh, the dream one of the characters has in the, I think it's the second short story I ever wrote for the Garaga series um, and put that together. And it it's dark and shady and there's not much detail. There's enough there that to really give you a hint of what he was going for, but it's, it's pretty cool. I really, really like it. I get, I get stuff like that. Occasionally people send me, um, <laughs> people will send me unstuffed stuffed animals Um <laughs> Let's see. What else have I been sent? I've been sent beer. I've been sent beer steins. I've been sent coffee, tobacco. Um, the Fiendlings hacked my address, so they were sending me all sorts of stuff. <laughs> and it's creepy as hell when you open a box and it's from you don't know who it's from. You don't know this person from anyone, and they hacked your address because of something you mentioned in one of your books. So um, it, it gets, gets a little creepy sometimes, but, uh, you know. Nothing, nothing bad has shown up yet. <laughs> yet. So, I was, so what's the, what's I, a, where, I'm sorry, go ahead. I just say, I was going to send him something really creepy and weird, but, but Terry talked me out of it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid to even ask. Uh, this is a family friendly <laughs> podcast, so I can't tell you. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. We'll be talking about this after the show. <clears throat> um, and, and, um, 
didn't you and you haven't you didn't mention this but didn't you um officiate a wedding as uh the garaga church church of garaga yes, well, I, I i um i did officiate a wedding um long distance it was a video wedding so they they're uh um the guy who was gonna actually marry them for whatever reason went mia and so he was a, a longtime fiendling and he asked me if i would do it since i was ordained so yes i did the uh i did the ceremony over the internet so you nice. are you are in an ordained minister in the Church of Garaga. The Church of Garaga has not been formally made a church, but I am ordained. Yes, nice. Oh, <laughs> terrifying in and of itself. So many questions there, but we'll move on. <laughs> <laughs> Probably a good idea. All right. So, what's the weirdest or funniest story about an interaction with a fan you've had since you started writing? Man, it's not the fans. It's not the fans. Um, I started going Balticon, I guess, uh, 10 years ago, nine or 10 years ago. And Balticon was, uh, at that time anyway, was it still is to a certain degree. It was basically a podcaster con. They had this massive new media track. Uh, most of the podcasters mm-hmm. were on the East Coast, um, still are in a lot of ways, um, at least the fiction folks. And so... We these are all people who met on social media. These are all people that that uh, you know we were pimping each other's podcasts. We were interviewing each other, reading each other's works. We would you know talk on the phone. We would I mean there was a lot of communication going on. Big support group. It was wonderful. So Balticon was basically an excuse to get together, and really we called it Barcon. Hmm. And we I called it Barcon it. because the new media track with all those authors and lunatics. They make podcasts like you two gentlemen uh, (laughs) at the bar and the bars were all the crazy happened. And uh, you'll just be sitting there talking with an author on one of your buddies. And then the next thing you know, you look around and there's like seven people standing around. Some of them are other authors. Some of them are readers of your work. And you don't know who's who because you've never met them before. You've never seen their faces. You don't know anything about them. And then suddenly drinks start showing up out of nowhere. And you're not really sure if you're supposed to drink them. Uh, what could be in them? Is somebody trying to roof you? <laughs> but, you know, basically bourbon and, and everything just starts showing up. People start dropping it on you. are like, what the hell? This is how a certain author, a certain best-selling New York Times best-selling author, ended up getting a little shit-faced. And they talked him into uh, what they were going to give him. 200 bucks to a charity if he mooned them on camera. Uh, <laughs> now, he I, w- I was I was there when this ha- this part happened. He got a me- or he messaged his business partner and said, "Can I do this?" And she just looked at us and went, "I can't believe I'm going to say yes." <laughs> And so sure enough, that was put up there. And the next morning he was like, who the hell let me do this? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that, that's, wow. pretty, that's pretty much the kind of stuff that happens at that con. You, you never know. I mean, people just walk by and they hand you a freaking bottle of bourbon, you know, and not say anything. Just here, here, Paul, have this. And then they walk away. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> there's just some really crazy stuff. That's, I mean, Balticon is still my favorite uh, con of all time because um, I get to see those folks. And uh, it, it's a good organization. They have some good authors there. Um, uh, you know, you'll have, you'll have folks from, from, from the East Coast. Uh, they'll be there, Jerry Pornell and folks like that. 
and you can run into them and talk to them and, and they'll end up going to the bar at some point and you'll get dragged into a conversation and actually get a chance to, you know, basically just say hi to these, to these, these folks who, you know, wrote some of the uh, seminal sci-fi work that, that got you started on your way, so to speak. And it, it's yeah. just cool. Whereas opposed to Dragon Con or Comic Con, which you just wait in line for hours and don't meet anybody or pay for the privilege. So it's a different kind of deal, but I, I just love that about those certain cons where you actually have a chance to have readers uh, and listeners come up and, and talk to you. And it's fun because it means that uh, you, you get the warm and fuzzy from somebody who really enjoys your work. But the other thing is you get to meet people. Um, I have social anxiety, so sometimes it's a little difficult. But at the same time, it's nice to talk to some of these folks, especially if they're trying to start on the uh, on the road to you know creative work. So it's always a good thing. I love it. Yeah, but that's that's where you get a lot of the weird stories happens at the bar. Always at the bar. <laughs> so you won't just just as FYI, you won't run into Jerry Pornell anymore. But people of right, his yeah. stature, people of his stature, yes. So, all right. So I wasn't thinking. I was thinking Larry Niven. Niven's going to be at the uh, Balticon this year. Oh, now. cool. Sorry. Um, so Paul has written many series. So this is where I list them out for you, dear listener. The Derelict oh, Saga, the Black series, the Writer, which was a standalone novel. Gears Inferno, which was also a standalone novel. Dead Ends, another standalone. He likes the standalone stuff, people. Uh, the, the Children of Garaga series, Closet Treats, which was standalone. Uh, Lamashtu, which was Lamashtu, which was a standalone story. Tattoo, uh, which was the Parsec Award nominee standalone story. The Tony Down series and Mimes, a standalone story. Because who doesn't need scary mimes in their life? Oh yes, I still <laughs> love that story. It still gives me the shivers. I love it. All right, so those all sound fascinating and if you're into horror check all of them out but uh, while they're all amazing today we're going to focus on his derelict saga because we've heard about him talk we've heard him talk about this series since he first envisioned it over on the DRS podcast uh, and I kind of like that we've learned about it as it went sort of as it appeared as a as an idea in his head and became something else so the series has an alien vibe uh, and I love that franchise who doesn't Sigourney Weaver hello um so how'd you <laughs> calm yourself people it's a family friendly show dang it hey man she she and jamie lee curtis those are there's a those are the bay those are the bay <laughs> your, your wife doesn't listen to this right you're okay uh she already knows don't worry about it so how did you come up with the premise for the series like where did the spark of inspiration come for people that uh that didn't listen to the dead robot society podcast God, man, I am actually going to have to go back and listen to what happened when I envisioned Marines. Anyway, because uh, it's been such a long, strange journey. I wanted to write a book. Um, I was working on a book that I knew uh, was probably going to be a hard sell for anybody, and I was like, "Well, I need I need another book that's that's uh, you know going to generate some sales and that that I want to write." So it's like I had been kicking this idea around for. Um, you know, a space zombie kind of thing. But really what I wanted to do is I wanted to make something as cool as Dead Space because I love the Dead Space video game franchise. And the I, I came to realize space zombies is just kind of stupid. 
So hmm. I just had this idea of I love the idea of a ship being out there in space that has no one aboard it. It's a ghost ship. It's a ghost story. Right. And then taking it in a completely different direction. So that story started out as a simple monster story, and then it just got larger and larger and larger and larger. And now it's going to be uh, the saga is going to be at least five books. The third nice. book just came out what, two weeks ago. So there's going to be two more books. I'm writing the fourth one right now. But the story just kept going because I, I wanted to talk about um, – I wanted to talk about artificial intelligence. I wanted to talk about uh, what happens when they reach sentience. I wanted to talk about what happens to humanity when they realize that uh, they have to leave the solar system at some point. And I wanted to also talk about what kinds of things happen when certain things get buried from the general public. I wanted to go into all those things and the kind of disaster that could happen. And, of course, I wanted a, another excuse to basically bend science on its ear. So that's, that's pretty much what drove Derelict. All right. So you've described the series to me and I think on the podcast, but it's, it's hard to keep it straight just because the Patreons of the uh, dead robots, we get some of the stuff that doesn't make the actual episodes. Um, but you described it as space horror done right. So what makes this series stand out from the other stuff that's out there in your opinion? Oh, I think done right was a was a narcissistic thing to say uh, or conceited. I think the the what I'm trying to do is, I guess, as much as possible is to use the laws of physics as we understand them, laws of chemistry, biology. And I did this in the black as well, which I think is one of the reasons why it's popular. People just love this idea. Use all the things that we know now today. And the things we think we know that we're going to do with technology or life forms or whatever, and just twist it. So in other words, we have all these physical laws. What happens if they're really not laws? They're just laws for us because we haven't discovered that, oh, there's an also here. The idea that there may be stable isotopes beyond the you know, 500, 600 um, neutron range. The uh, what are they atomic weight? Sorry, mm -hmm. for just imagine for an inst for instance, if carbon, you know, you know about carbon fourteen is radioactive, it decays. What if there's a carbon seven fifty that doesn't decay? What kind of of attributes would it have? What what kind of um, what kind of phenomenon would it generate for us to witness? And while it would be in its normal space, we would be observing something completely different. And who's to say that if we if we take that as a given that that's possible? Who's to say that life forms would not be completely different from us if they instead were made out of carbon 650 or whatever than, than you know, regular carbon, which we are? You know, what would happen with all the chemistry? What would happen to the physical laws? How would, how would that change things? So I love to basically put these people out there who are all you know, invested in the science and, and have some idea of the science and then have the world completely twist around them. It's just so much fun to deal with. It's so much fun. I just pull the rug out from under him, huh? Yeah. I, I've, um, a buddy of mine told me, he's like, you're teaching science by teaching what you can't do that's being done. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the law. Here's how Paul breaks it. And all the characters are screaming, this, that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. <laughs> and it's, it's just fun because you, you're, um, it's just like an alien and aliens when they find out, you know, the creature's. Uh, when you destroy them, they release that molecular acid. That's their blood. How the hell does that work? 
Right. And and things like that. There's no there's no touchstone, even if the organism is is, quote unquote, identifiable as something. It doesn't mean we have any clue about how it works or what it's made out of or what its actual uh, genesis is. And I think that's where the the fun comes in. And it's the same thing with the black. It, it you know, that's a mashup of alien meets the thing meets the blob on an oil rig. Um, at least the first book. But what I described in there is purposely un, un, unidentifiable, uncategorizable, and you can't even study it. Well, it's not true. We'll find that out in Evolution, the fourth book, which will, should be out later this year. Um, but the, the you know the bottom line is providing providing that kind of of uh, story where you can play with these kinds of things and you can try and imagine what would happen if if suddenly you know magnetic poles reversed or uh, you know we discover there's a hell of a lot more oxygen out there than in certain parts of the planets or hey this planetoid isn't really a planetoid uh, kind of thing. Or these other things are sitting out in the Kuiper Belt are actually life forms. Ooh, I mean, there's yeah. just so much fun to play with that. And how would we, as a as a species, deal with that? Is it a threat or is it a discovery? Interesting. So I, I love to play in those spaces, and it makes for for more interesting stories. And then you put all the other things I want to talk about in there, and you know, boom! Suddenly, you've got a. 10 or 20 books, a series slash universe with all the other books that need to be written. And Paul's voice cracks because he's never going to finish them all. <laughs> he's got to live to 150. It's a fun problem. Yeah, I have to live to 150. I that or hire, you know, teams of ghostwriters. The bottom line is, is that the uh, th- those are very fun places to play. I think people get a really big kick out of that when you don't describe completely what it is. It has that that creep feel that that uh just kind of unnerves you and i i want to mix that with with action i want to mix that with uh you know regular old suspense it's just i want to throw you through the fun house and see what happens i want to throw the characters in the fun house and see how they they deal with it yeah so I, it's just it's fun i've already said that people are more afraid by what they cannot see than from what they can right and what what you what you do not understand is all and and humans have been doing this probably since our inception what you're afraid of is what you don't understand most of the time. Mm-hmm. And what you don't understand, humans, the way we deal with it and probably have always dealt with it is make it go away. Yeah. Well, I mean. Well, maybe it doesn't want to go away. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the that's the thing, though, is we evolved from fearful people, right? Because if you're sitting at the campfire in the as a prehistoric man and, oh, my God, is that a mountain lion? Let me run. Well, if you're wrong, you just you just ran a little bit. If you don't jump because, oh, that's not what it is, and the mountain lion eats you, you don't reproduce. So, you know, fear has a um, survival sort of instinct feature, which is why it's there, which is why it's such a universal thing. Horror, I mean. Yeah, but but at the same time, it's like, uh, you know, we're we're here in, in uh, 2018, and we really haven't moved on much from that. <laughs> yeah. No, no, we haven't. <laughs> So it, it's it's for, for me, looking at the species and, and ancient history and everything else, I just shake my head and go, my God, we're, we, we haven't learned a damn thing. <laughs> no, but we've got cooler toys. We, we have really great toys. Our spears are the most awesome spears in the universe now, <laughs> or at least our, well, as far as we're concerned. As far as we know. Our spears, <laughs> yeah, our spears and clubs are, are awesome, but uh, not much else. <laughs> so, 
All right. So the Derelict Saga is clearly a series because you just said so. Um, you have three books out in the universe. You're talking about the fourth book coming out later this year. So what's next for these characters after those four books? Well, they'll they'll get another book. I think there's definitely going to be five in Derelict Saga. But bottom line is, is that uh, Derelict, they go out to go bring this ship back that's been missing for 43 years. And uh, it doesn't go well. Hmm. It doesn't go well at all. Um, so now they have done something that they have to try and figure out a way to fix before it more or less destroys the universe as they understand it. That's what they think is going on. So the other two books will um, basically be more unfurling uh, and giving more information about uh, how this all got started, what the AIs were really setting up, and also what's coming. And uh, mm. it's going to be a lot of fun. I, I can't wait. The uh, I, I just keep getting more and more reviews about write faster, write faster, write faster, write faster. So I'm, I'm doing my best. All right. Well, speaking of reviews, because we've we've added this as part of our interview process, we, oh, no. we skim the reviews um, because I skim, I read reviews before I buy a book. So I figure it's something worth worth mentioning. Um, it helps me the one star and the five star reviews do help me decide because some of what people hate in a one star would be what I love. So some of the books that like, uh, like I've mentioned before, Richard Fox's Ember Wars. Oh, this is just gun porn. I'm like, boom, dude, sign me up. I'm buying this book. Right. <laughs> so, so, you know, it's not even one star reviews can help sales. Um, and I'll add Richard Fox cause I just gave myself. <laughs> oh, and Voltron. Don't forget Voltron. Why do you oh, add Voltron? <laughs> Why would you bring that up? What's next? Mighty Morphin Power Rangers? What the hell is wrong with Boom, you? There's another. <laughs> you jerks. Okay, I'll stop now. All right. I'll stop now. I'll stop now. All right. So this is uh, where I, I tell you, everybody, dear listener, please be kind and speak your mind. Leave a damn review. But uh, okay, so I've skimmed the reviews for book one in your derelict saga, the derelict Marines. Oh, it's God. already got 103 reviews with a solid four star rating. Your reviewers seem to think you did a great job with the details, but they objected to your cliffhanger endings. So, <laughs> <laughs> so and they love that you blended the real science with the horror element. So how do you keep that momentum going without pissing everybody off with more with, with horrible cliffhangers? Oh, man, it's such a problem. Like I said, when I started this, this is supposed to be one book. And then I got uh, three quarters of the way through it and went, wait a minute. I, th there's no way to end this. There's no way to end this in one book. It's, it's just not possible. The first three books basically comprise an arc all to themselves. Um, I would call them the Mira Trilogy, um, if you want to put it that way. And that's 310,000 words of just them dealing with this ship. Mm -hmm. If I had sat down and write, wrote all that entire thing, it would have taken a year without a book out there. And that means a year without money coming in, which is bad. Mm -hmm. um, so I had to make the decision, which was basically, I got to find a stopping point, cut it off as best I can, and hope people will come back for the second one. And they, and they did. Quite a few of them did. Most of them did. So... The second one had to end exactly the same freaking way. <laughs> but I left people in a better place than they were in the first one. The third book of this arc actually does tie up everything except for the massive freaking problem that they created by tying up everything. 
So it's 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 kind of difficult to walk that line with the black. Though the first three black books basically take place simultaneously to a certain degree. They're concurrent. Um, I didn't have that problem at all, except I left some loose ends, which led to the, which led to the other two books. But this is the first series where I've actually had to go through and say, okay, I have to cut it off now. I just have got to cut this off and get this out there. <laughs> the best way that I can do this, and I, I had a really, really bad 12 months uh, before Destruction came out, is to put out a new book, like a new book in this series every three to six months so that people don't feel like they have to wait two years or three years. I don't want to be George R. R. Martin or, you know, John Ringo. Hmm. Uh, Ringo never finishes anything and R. R. Martin can't finish. So there's a, uh, I don't want to be those folks. I don't want to get myself trapped in that. I want to be able to, you know, finish the story and make everybody, you know, pleased that they began the journey. But that does mean I occasionally have to put a hard stop somewhere. And the people who read this, they read my work and like it, they expect it. I've been podcasting for so long, leaving people on a weekly cliffhanger that I've gotten pretty damn good at it. And uh, unfortunately, I've gotten really damn good at it with books, too. <laughs> <laughs> So this is this is a question that I'm just sort of pulling on the fly. But do you think re- readers really hate cliffhangers, or do they just love complaining about it? <laughs> I think it depends. I think it really does depend. Um, I think there are some folks, and I had I had a couple of of uh, readers when when Marines came out sent me messages on my author page telling me that that. Uh, you're a son of a bitch. This is just a marketing ploy, yada, yada, yada. I can't believe you would do this to your readers. I'm never reading you again, block. And it was like, okay, I'm sorry that that my need to eat offends your reader entitlement. Go fuck yourself. Bye. You know, it was just one of those kinds of deals. It's people, some people are not going to give you any uh, leeway on that because they don't understand what the hell they're talking about. They don't know what the situations are. And they think that I'm some big high flute and writer who's got, you know, millions of dollars in the bank. I, it's just not the way it works. It's just not the way that works. Every book is, um, is uh, food on the table. So I can either, I can either spend the uh, time just writing these little one-off stories or 80,000 words a piece and put one out every couple of months and you're not going to get complex storytelling. You're not going to get complex situations or anything like that, but maybe I can give you a good ride. But Or you can let me do these epic things that are going to encompass a lot of different issues, a lot of different situations, and you can wait for them as I can finish them. That's basically the deal. And I think a lot of authors are in that space and have that problem. And some series lend themselves to doing a monster movie of the week kind of thing, or you know, basically do a, a you know an episode per book, so to speak. Some stories don't lend themselves that way. So it just kind of depends on where, where you're at. And some readers understand it. Some readers are going to forgive you for being that kind of jerk. I think most of my readers expect it. They get shocked when I don't write it that way. Um, and uh, yes, I have them happily calling me a cliffhanger ambassador. And I have a shirt that says founding member of the cliffhanger ambassador club. I've been doing this a long time and there are people who just absolutely love it when I leave them like that. But I try to do it better than, than their book, much better cliffhanger than the first two. Okay. All right. Yeah. Fair enough. So 
do you have any any plans or has anyone approached you to, to do anything bigger, such as role-playing games, movies, video games, based on your Derelict saga? Based on Derelict, I haven't heard anything. Um, the Black got a lot of nibbles. So that might actually be the property that, that sees life outside of uh, the written word. I think when I finish Derelicts, I will probably go back and try and write screenplays for it. Oh. And try and make it into uh, two or three movies or uh, two or three seasons of a TV show, something along those lines. But write it in such a way that it lends itself to that. I'd like to be able to do that. I'd like to get to that point where I can take some of these crazy things and, and make them so that they're still captures the original spirit that I had, but are, you know, distilled down into the bite-sized chunks that you have to have for, for TV and movie. So I'd like to get to that point. Well, I imagine like most, most authors, you probably think about writing when you're taking a shower, when you're making coffee, when you're driving, when you go out to check your mail and you think about it so much during the day that you have dreams about it. Do you ever give yourself nightmares? I haven't had a nightmare in a long time, but uh, there are. There was a when I was writing the end of Closet Treats, um, which is about a a uh, person who suffers from psychotic delusions, thinks he sees a demon driving an ice cream truck around the neighborhood, um, and then starts to investigate, and then things really go off, go off the walls. While I was writing the end of that book, there's a scene in there that uh, I. As I was writing it, I just basically stopped and I couldn't move. It was just one of those deals where the movie kept playing on my mind and I got locked into it for a few seconds. And, it, you know, when you snap out of that, you're just kind of like, what the hell is wrong with me that I would even imagine this? <laughs> uh, you know, there's 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 those moments, but the uh, um, not nightmares specifically, but definitely some ideas and thoughts that are just kind of like, Ooh, why would you why would you get into that person's head? They're icky. And, uh, well, sometimes you got to write the stories about the icky. Yeah. Okay. So, um, Chris, do you have any more questions about the derelict saga before we, we transition? No, I'm good. What about you, Paul? Is there anything we didn't ask that you want to tell us about these, um, wayward Marines and their trek through hell? (laughs) Their trek through hell. (laughs) Uh, just that, um, it's a very large conspiracy, there's something going on with the uh, sentient AIs and the Soul Federation and uh, these poor Marines, the, the misfits that they are, undermanned, undergunned, uh, underfinanced, and uh, out there on their own are trying to figure out who exactly is lying to them and why, and then cool. figuring out what the end game is. So it's it's there's a lot of stuff going on in that series I haven't even begun to uncover yet, and it's going to after the derelict saga there will definitely be another series set in that universe nice but you've referred to the h&r black in your um S&R in your black. s&r h and block <laughs> <laughs> i thought you i told you people i do need to get hearing aids all right so don't laugh <laughs> what just speak up speaking my good ear so what does the s&r stand for search and rescue okay very simple Try to make a little. I try to make the acronyms as as easily memorable memorable as possible. I didn't, didn't want to fancy it up with anything else. It's basically here it is. If you're a casual sci-fi reader, casual military uh, sci-fi person, you'll just be able to jump in and go. 
you know, not, not, I don't want to throw around a whole bunch of jargon unless I absolutely have to. Okay. You, you do know why, um, Chris asked the nightmare question because then worded it the way he did because I accidentally waterboarded myself when I was coming up with ideas for a story. <laughs> what? We were, we were we were plotting the um, the Galactic Legion, which is going to be our series um, going forward, like our universe we're creating. And I had an idea while I was washing my face and I started getting excited. I breathed in as I'm like towel over my face in the shower. Totally waterboarded myself because that's how hardcore we are. We we enjoy you putting you in the graveyard and killing you in books, but uh, come on. (laughs) I haven't put you in my graveyard yet. I will have to do that. I will have to do that as well. I want to be the Joe Buckley of my generation. The Joe Buckley. Well, I've already got Thomas Reed. He's pretty much my go-to. He shows up in just about every book as a corpse. (laughs) You never see him alive. He's always a corpse. Maybe he can be the zombie you were talking about. No, no. I don't want him ever walking and talking. I don't want him ever to have voice. I only want him to be a just body on the slab. Just a toe, toe tag. Toe tag tree, man. He's been with me since uh, <laughs> since I only had 20 listeners on the podcast. Outstanding. Hmm. So um, transitioning to the, the larger genre, since you write horror and science fiction, uh, what is your biggest pet peeve in the two dramas? So we'll, genres, excuse me. So we'll start with horror as a subgenre. What is your biggest pet peeve? And obviously, please don't list names. We want to just in general. Um, that's a toughie. I like so many different aspects of the horror literature out there. I'm not really big on torture porn at all. It annoys the crap out of me because I, I just don't see the point. Um, I have a secret love for, well, not so secret love for for serial killers and people with demented minds. So I'm 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 firmly in that. And obviously, since I write monster <laughs> books, I like the monster stories. Horror is is really really difficult to pin down what I do like and what I don't. But I would say basically that the, my biggest problem is is uh, uh, torture porn more than anything else. Okay. And what about for hard science fiction? What's your biggest pet peeve? <sighs> I would think my biggest pet peeve is actually some of the uh, quote-unquote fans. Oh. Because okay. you've got your Star Trek and my, and my uh, Star Wars. You've got your, uh, your Firefly and my Expanse. What the hell is wrong with you kind of deal? I think there's there's uh, and in fact I'm going to be on a panel at Balticon about this about science fiction versus science fantasy. Um, I don't like the polarization that things have to be one way or the other. I think hard science fiction can become completely unacce- inaccessible uh, if if people take it too far. So you may be scientifically accurate, but you bored the shit out of the average reader. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I was so happy when I got comments on both the black and derelict for saying, thank you for writing something hard sci-fi that I, can under- I could understand. And uh, it really, there are some books I've tried to read that I wanted to read uh, that I, I just, they were so full of bullshit that you couldn't get to the story. It's like, yeah, you could write a really good research paper on this, but it's not a story. But I think that there's there's also there's room for that. I love the fact that we have the ability to do the hard sci-fi stuff to throw in and you know, talk about chemistry, biology, physics, et cetera, as we understand them today and give people information in such a way that they, it may be about things that they didn't know. I, I rarely meet a person who knows what the Kuiper Belt is. So just by reading Derelict and that happens in the Kuiper Belt, I've educated them just by doing that. Um 
you, there's no reason why you can't have that kind of that that kind of of uh, scientific stuff in there with your space fantasy as well. And uh, I don't consider Star Wars science fiction. I consider it a space fantasy. <laughs> um, yeah. That will start a war, I'm sure. But the bottom line is, is that I, I get annoyed by the camps. The camps get really annoying at times. And I, I, I'm, I'm just the one standing there going, can't we all just get along? Because, you know, this, this is some really great properties. You look at Firefly. It's hard sci-fi, and it's not even close to being hard sci-fi at the same time. Um, the Expanse has got uh, – I'm just now watching the TV show because I read the first three books. But it, it's got – most of the ideas in it are hard sci-fi, but then it's got this fantasy horror element to it. So there's, there's a lot of different ways to put these things together and make it work, but it doesn't have to be so polarized. I just, it really annoys me that we have these, these uh, fan bases in all the genres, doesn't matter what they are, that are kind of at each other's throats about what the seminal works are. And the seminal works play nice together just fine. I don't know why there needs to be that problem. And a lot of them built off the, you know what I mean? Like what's the standing on the shoulders of giants? Like even they built off what was already there. So oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's, mm. it's, I think we sometimes lose sight of the fact that there's so much of this is, is a viral evolution. A story begets another story. An idea begets another idea. And you have to keep trolling down until you actually find the kernel of what actually started it. I mean, we can go back and credit H.G. Wells with a whole bunch of stuff, but we can also go back and, and uh, uh, credit Mary Shelley. I mean, tell me Frankenstein right. isn't science fiction. It absolutely is. So there's, there's just so much that goes on there. I just wish that we were... Uh, able, maybe it's just humanity in general, or maybe it's our societal structure. I don't know, but that we could, we could get to the point where, hey, you like that? That's cool. I don't, I don't care for it. I like this. Well, I don't, I don't like that either. Is there something we we like together? Let's try and find a common ground here. I don't really enjoy epic fantasy, but I'm not going to hate on it. I'll Agreed. Hate, I'll, I'll right. hate on Tolkien if you start telling me he's the best writer and storyteller ever lived. Then we will have a problem. But uh, you know, <laughs> live and let live, kind of thing. You like that? Great. I don't have to. I don't have to shit on it because I don't like it. True story. Right. When uh, when Chris was in the Marine Corps, he actually served uh, in the same trenches as um, Tolkien when they were in World War One. <laughs> <laughs> um. Hmm. Uh, is there hmm. document? Is there video on this? <laughs> I thought I was the old fart on the show. What the hell? Well, I mean, you know, uh, there's old and then there's ancient. But <laughs> wow, wow, okay, wow. Following, Chris, following Chris what, 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 when it, when do you change his diapers? I mean, how do you do that? <laughs> You're in Arizona, right? Oh, I, I haven't had to do that in weeks. Oh, God. <laughs> Wow. Oh, All right. So, oh, yeah. Here we go. Following that, <laughs> what do <are> you. <laughs> well, that image is going to be stuck in my head for a while. Um, curse all of you. So following that, what do you think are the best types of monsters in science fiction? I guess I'm asking a little bit about the plot devices that you like. So metaphorical monsters that scare everyone versus Godzilla or other actual monsters. Like what's the best monster, if you would? I'm, I'm air quoting here. Um out in 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 the horror sort of field. Oh, that's that was about as clear as mud. Yeah, it was about as clear as mud. Well, <laughs> the concept is clear as mud too. Um, I really love when I was doing research for the black. I went through and I got down and dirty with all these these creatures that live just in ridiculous amount of pressure 
in uh, freezing cold water with no light and how much, how many things are down there and how alien they look, how absolutely uh, ridiculously alien they look. Go look up what a lantern fish looks like. It is just. No, that, this is why I do not go in the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you go in the ocean, I seriously doubt you're going to come across a lantern fish. Um, they're going to be about three miles down. The, the, uh, looking at that because it is so alien and yet recognizable it's recognizable as a fish but it's a fish that crawled out of your freaking nightmares kind of deal mm -hmm. that is fun those kinds of monsters are very fun uh shapeshifters um like uh john carpenter's the thing that is just my that is my go-to horror movie that is probably in my top three horror movies of all time um and science fiction movies and I think it is absolutely incredible to have a creature that we don't get, we don't understand, and it can do things that just to make no sense to us. And for a lot of those, I, I go to ocean. I go that that's my my standby. Let me go find out what the hell's down there and see what what we discovered this week that I can put into uh, into something. Right. It's just so much fun. And and people, when I put the actual links up there to what a lanternfish looks like, I know that the, I mentioned the lanternfish in the black. And people went out there and actually looked at it, sent me comments going, how the hell did you find this thing existed? Well, you know. well there's there's been a couple of them where they found things that washed ashore that they thought had been extinct for hundreds of years. And like, wait a minute, what? Yeah, exactly. And, and they're finding the more that we actually know more about space than we do our own ocean. And that yeah. is something that really unnerves me in a lot of ways. But most people don't understand what's living down there that we know about, let alone what we don't know about. And that that's part of it. Th these are things that are much more accessible to us because your reaction, Chris, that's why I don't go in the ocean. That reaction right there is the one I'm looking for. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> If I can, if I can, if I can give you that reaction, then I did my job. Yep. If I was okay with going to the ocean before I read your book, and now I'm not, that's a win. <laughs> or at the same time, if I made you go Google lanternfish, if I made you go uh, Google um, uh, the the vampire squid, yeah, vampire there's another squid. good one, or the mantis shrimp. Oh. I posted an article about. Those are things oh, that people yeah. don't know really exist and they don't know what they are. But if you go look them up, you're kind of like, what in the heck was nature thinking when they created this thing? You know, how did this evolve? What is it doing mm -hmm. here? And those are really, really fun things to play with. And I, I really enjoy them. I'm looking at the mantis shrimp right now. That's a uh, freaky. It looks like somebody on acid and LSD smoked some something. <laughs> yeah, go, go. Yeah, then go then go read about how its eyes work. Go read how its eyes work. Oh yeah. Sees colors it, it, we don't. It moves in ways that we don't understand. It senses motion in ways that don't understand and it can also punch the living hell out of you. It's a very <laughs> odd animal. Yeah. Interesting. It can punch as hard as the 22 yep. shoots. Imagine that uh, on a large scale. Imagine one of those that's like, I don't know, 100 times larger. Or, yeah, even the size of a cat. Yeah, even the size of a cat would be terrifying. Yes. Mm -hmm. oh, thank you. That, that's that's for that story I was talking about. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> that the 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 best kind of creatures are the ones that are recognizable and yet not. They're twisted just enough that uh, you 
you have that moment of of cognitive dissonance as your brain tries to re- reconcile what you think that is versus, versus what it is. Because we all see patterns. We we I, I can't imagine a creature that we haven't seen, that I haven't seen, that I'm not basing off something I've seen. It's just impossible. Right. Um, there's the, the only way that that could be is if you're talking about something like the blob, which is just a pool of liquid. But then it's not really, it doesn't have any of those attributes. So everything that we do, uh, where you're talking about H.R. Giger's work, well, the alien creatures and things like that, those are all based off of analogs with insects, deep sea creatures, uh, strange looking mammals. We, we put all these things together. We create these, these uh, imaginary chimeras that are just kind of running around in our imaginations. And that's what we base it on. So you try and make, a, if you want to make a monster really interesting, give it some kind of base form that is recognizable and then completely twist it until it's not. Those are my favorite monsters. Wow. Jared's still looking at the yeah, it's, uh, it's freaky looking. <laughs> so this is where Chris was supposed to ask a question. So I'm gonna pretend that that he doesn't know what's going on. So do you ever have trouble transitioning in and out of the dark spaces you write about? Um, not really. There are times where I wish I could go write something a little bit more fluffy, but uh, um, I don't have any fluffy stories in my head at the moment. It's it's more along the lines of switching in and out of uh, just that imaginary land. And if uh, I know that um, when I am playing a game or walking the dog, listening to audiobook, or even reading, sometimes the stories that or whatever story I'm telling at that time is still talking to me in my head. And sometimes it gets very difficult to focus on anything because the the words just keep going. And uh, it's it it kind of causes some some issues every now and then, staring off into space or you know disassociating yourself from what's going on around you. So it's not really a matter of unplugging the dark space; it's more like telling the imagination to shut the hell up and let me uh, live for a few minutes. Mm. All right. Well, enough about your book. Your book's uh, shameless plugging is over. What are you reading in the genre right now? Oh, boy. Uh, I just finished uh, the first uh, book in Peter F. Hamilton's Commonwealth series, and I'm reading the second one now, Judas Unchained. Um, I really, the first book, Pandora's Star, really started out really slow, really, really slow, which I should have been used to with Peter F. Hamilton. But it took me forever to get through the first book. But now that I'm through that first book, I'm definitely ripping through the second one. What else am I reading? Uh, I'm reading the Altered Carbon stories. Because I, I saw the uh, I saw the series and absolutely loved it. Um, if you've seen the series, go read the books. If you read the books, go see the series. That's all I could say. And after that, I've got a lot of reading to catch up on, including some things written by that Terry Mixon guy. So <laughs> yeah. because I've got a backlog of those, I need to get through so I can give him crap on the show. Uh, what else am I reading? Uh, Ed Lauren occasionally is a horror writer. Uh, Scott Sigler when he puts new stuff out. Um, Jake Bible under protest usually. Uh, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of good stuff going out there and, and horror and sci-fi. It's just uh it's it's kind of rare these days for me to find a good mix between the two, which is why I'm so excited about writing it because I want more of those kinds of stories and people aren't writing them. It's very 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 depressing. <laughs> All right, 
So are there any scientific breakthroughs that you're following or excited by? Because we do like to try to remember the science part of science fiction. <laughs> well, we, when we were talking about the mantis shrimp, um, when I mentioned that, I, I have I post I post all the science stuff on my uh, on my author page, um, try and do two or three articles a week that, that caught my interest. The it, with um, with derelict, since it takes place in the Kuiper Belt, they'll research researched in the Kuiper Belt. And it was believed that they were all the Kuiper Belt objects. All of them are made of ice. Well, they just discovered a couple of days ago. No, there's a big rock out there. We know it's not made of ice. What is it doing there? Because it kind of starts to blow apart the models. So every time that we think we have something figured out, we find that the, there's an also. Oh. You know, it's 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 there's there's always an also or yes, but. And those are always those are the articles that really make me sit there and go, hmm, that really stoke the imagination. Uh, the idea of the CubeSats, these little tiny satellite, well, oh, tiny yeah. satellites, relatively speaking, that are are getting shot everywhere, are, are put into space everywhere. You know, one rocket blasts off and fires six of these puppies out there, and they're no bigger than than uh, um, I don't know a printer, a couple of printers put together. The, the fact that we've reached that kind of technology on a daily basis is really scary to me, how fast things are moving. But think about what we could do with that. If we could put those out there in the Oort cloud or the Kuiper belt and have them just kind of floating around, taking a look at things. I just love those ideas of, of being able to explore. And this stuff is all over the place. NASA is working on a mini fission, react, fission reactor to, to, to power Mars stations. And there's all this cool stuff. The problem with Mm -hmm. with sending those satellites out to the Kuiper Belt and looking at what's out there is we might find something looking back. That is correct. And yeah, and that's basically. And that is a Paul E. Cooley story. (laughs) And that is a Paul E. Cooley story. Absolutely. And and that's what makes this fun, though, is you you go and look at all the crazy stuff that we're discovering on a daily basis, things that that. I mean, it's like every other day on space.com or Gizmodo, I'm seeing an article that links back to a, um, you know, abstract from NASA or the ESA and, or, or JPL for that matter. And it's kind of like, wait a minute. I remember back in the eighties, we thought it worked like this. Now they're saying it doesn't work like that. It works like this. So every day seems like we're discovering more about the, the world we live in, the universe we live in. And every day there's something new that, uh, um, stokes another detail story idea or another story detail on my head. Hmm, yep. So I, I just, I love it. I love the fact all this stuff is just happening now. All right. So what about you, Chris? What are you excited by? Well, talking about space.com looks like the debate for Pluto being a planet or not is back. And frankly, it really shouldn't be an argument. Pluto is a planet. It's always been a planet. They can't change the definition. You know, it was it was big enough for NASA's mom, right? <laughs> <laughs> isn't Eros? No, not Eros. Isn't Ceres bigger than than Pluto? I don't. We don't talk about that. <laughs> well, <laughs> 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 wow! Wait, but there's it's not the size of the planet. It's it. Never mind. <laughs> There's actually a meme floating around that's got a picture of Pluto, and it says, Dear NASA, I was big enough for your mom, Pluto. Yeah, exactly. Or the one where they've got uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson and Pluto flipping each other off. 
<laughs> All right. And so I've actually also following um, an article from space.com because they're, they're a great aggregator of technology news. Um, but there is an article. This is the titled Making Stuff in Space Off Earth Manufacturing is Just Getting Started. And so basically space is a harsh place for humans, but the environment can be perfectly suited for some types of building. As the cost of space travel continually drop, the price for making things in the void will as well. So from the space.com article, we generally make things by subjecting them to a different environment, says Andrew Rush, the president and CEO of Made in Space and in space manufacturing company. Wow, I didn't even realize those things were out there yet. But uh, he said, we made food by cooking it in a fire, heating it up and causing chemical reactions. We make steel by heating things up at a high temperature and maybe depending on the steel in a high pressure environment, we can quench things. We can make things cold to make different materials or improve on those materials. Really space enabled materials are just another version of that. But instead of throwing something in a furnace and heating it to a thousand degrees Fahrenheit or fifth, uh, 540 degrees Celsius for you confused peoples in the world uh, or something. We take it to space. We can basically, he's saying we could do the same thing. So basically they're using the predictable and harsh space environment as a way to control various processes and make things more economical going forward. So they're taking what makes it inhabitable for humanity and using that as a, as a good thing. So I find that fascinating because I didn't think we were that close to it. But the fact that a company already exists is just sort of mind blowing. Well, think about it. The uh, um, oh, God, who was it? It was uh, one of the L- Luxembourg, Luxembourg, <sighs> Luxembourg came out and basically formed the first asteroid mining company. I'm not kidding. The country did this. Oh, And what they what they're doing in actuality is very, very intelligent. This is not to say they have anything. What they've done is they set up the framework for how it will work, what the economics are, how, how the, the kind of regulations they'll need, uh, this, that, and the other. They're basically looking at this as an inevitability and getting ready for it. So there, there's a lot of things going on like that that seem like they're far out in the future, but they're really not. And I don't- I mean, we're, we're printing, we're 3D printing houses now. Yes. How long is it before we start putting those those things up in space, and when now we can print them in without worrying with in these kinds of environments where you don't have to worry about um, humidity and things like that screwing stuff up? Outstanding. This is very true. I'm gonna have to look up that Luxembourg article. So, um, as we wrap this up, Paul, uh, this will be in the show notes. But where can listeners find you? You can find me at shadowpublications.com. You can also find me at devrobotssociety.com, along with my, my co-host and, and nemesis, Terry Mixon. Um, let's see, Amazon author page. Where else am I? I have a Facebook author page, and uh, I have a Twitter account, Paul underscore E underscore Cooley, and I'm kind of all over the place. So do a Google search. You'll find me one way or another. Probably lots of horrible things said about me, but whatever. Or just look in the show notes. That works. Or look in the show notes. You can find me there too. So how apparently. how do you get a nemesis? I want a nemesis. I haven't I have two well, Terry's not really my nemesis. He's just this uh jerk I talk to once a week. Jake <laughs> Bible is my nemesis. Uh that was forged in the early days of Twitter. Just pick a public fight with somebody. It's fun that way. And then their fan bases get confused and suddenly everybody hates everybody. It's fun to watch. Um, <laughs> Jake and I were actually really good friends, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's how you get a nemesis, man. It, it just, you start kicking each other on social media and then pretty soon people start taking it seriously. And it's hilarious because we weren't. 
All right. Yeah. So what about us? Where can they find us there, Chris? Our website is www.sfshenanigans.com. Our Twitter handle is at SFS, that's Sierra, Foxtrot Sierra, underscore show. Our email is podcast at sfshenanigans.com. And our Shenanigans Facebook group is at facebook.com slash groups slash sfshenanigans. And if you want sci-fi shenanigans swag, go to our website. Thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For Chris Winder, I'm J.R. Hanley, and this was the Sci-Fi Shenanigans Podcast. We'll be back next week at the same time where we'll indulge our love of space and all things that go boom. All right. Thank you for sticking with us through that uh, archived episode that was in the... Uh, in the digital memory hole that we found. We thought you'd enjoy it. So thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For Nick Garber and Doc Seska, I am J.R. Hanley, and this was the Archive for the Blasters and Blades podcast. We'll be back at our regular scheduled time where we'll indulge our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, and all things that go boom.